Father, you are the one that we praise. And we do adore you. We come this morning to worship you, to focus our mind and our hearts and our attention upon you. Father, I pray that through your word and through the moving of your Holy Spirit that you will capture us. That we will become so fully sighted in on you that we will remember your redemptive work in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ways that you have worked in us and to us and throughout history to bring glory to your name. That, Father, we will, we will motivated by our love for you and by our hunger for truth that we will be faithful, to be obedient, to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace it in our own hearts and in our own lives, to live as people of the gospel, to live as people who adore the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him and make him known. So, Father, you speak to our hearts today, encourage us, convict us, motivate us, change us, transform us, speak to us. In your name I pray. Amen. To set the background... The church has started. Jesus Christ came to the apostles, the resurrected Christ, having been crucified and resurrected, comes to the apostles and reiterates his commission, spending some 50 days teaching them, talking with them, preparing them, pointing out in the Old Testament how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him as Christ and preparing them for the work. And he told them in Acts 1, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's interesting that he didn't start a class, he didn't start a school at that point, even though there had been teaching and training going on. Their commission was to go pray. And so they went and they gathered together 120 in an upper room and there they waited upon the Lord. And they didn't wait idly. And they didn't wait twiddling their thumbs or playing solitaire. They waited by praying by focusing by beseeching by worshiping they spent time in the presence of God as a people seeking God's movement the movement that God had already promised and he delivered he delivered at Pentecost when they went out to preach and 3,000 got saved and then of course persecution hit and They continued to preach miracles, signs, and wonders, giving a testament that this is not some movement that's just a fad or some passing fancy or the next great motivational speaker or movement, but this is an act of God. This is the God who can heal the lame. This is the God who can resurrect the dead. This is the God who, who moves and works supernaturally, giving his imprimatur, giving his approval, demonstrating these people are speaking my message. They're speaking my truth. And it was not in contradiction to the scripture that they had. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so their text was the Old Testament. Speaking of the New Covenant, their text was the Old Covenant and how it pointed to the New Covenant. Now that's important because there was one of those guys who got saved probably at Pentecost. Certainly he had been a believer. Certainly he had believed in Christ as his Savior since the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Which had only been a matter of months. Not a great deal of time has passed. Less than a year. Just a matter of months. And yet he was no novice in the Old Testament. We will see today that he was well versed in the Old Testament. A Jewish man of Greek heritage one of those families that had been taken off into captivity and that had adopted the language adopted the language and the culture of his 
adopted people, and yet stayed true to the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, and yet stayed true to coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. Very devout, very knowledgeable, and then he met Christ. And in Christ, he saw the fulfillment of all that God had promised throughout the Old Testament. And because of his enthusiasm and his humble spirit and being filled with the Spirit, when conflict came up in this new group of believers about a ministry failure, they didn't cover it up and they didn't hide it and they didn't dismiss it. They identified it. And they told the congregation, you need to pick seven men from among you. And the first man that they picked, who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom was this man, Stephen. He had a servant's heart willing to serve, but his service was not simply limited to the administration of food for widows. He was also a speaker and a preacher. As a matter of fact, he's one of two men in this early church that was given the gift or the ability to heal, to do signs and wonders just like the apostles were. Only two that were not apostles that are recorded in Scripture who were given this at this time. And that was, again, a verification that this is a messenger from God. This man's name was Stephen. We've seen his character. We've seen his calling. We've seen his courage. We've seen his convictions and the convictions that he held. And because he went as an evangelist to the synagogues that he was probably raised in, Certainly to the synagogue, to the freedmen, the Hellenistic Jews. One of the synagogues, I'm sure, was one of the ones that Paul, Saul, attended. Uh, He was from Cilicia. He was from Tarsus of Cilicia. And he was very devout, and so he would have been faithful. I'm sure that they had encountered one another. We will see. They see each other here shortly. And he reasoned with them, and he told them about how Jesus Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament, how it is completed, and now everything's changed. And the first point in last week's sermon was Christ demands everything, and Christ changes everything, and I hope that's been your experience. If you've met Christ, he's demanded everything. And when you meet Christ, he changes everything. That was certainly the case for Stephen. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't shut him up. They couldn't argue him out of his positions. He was speaking from conviction and courage. And so they set men aside to accuse him, to accuse him before the Jewish court of blasphemy. And they had four accusations that they levied against him. We see these in Acts chapter 6, verse 11, and then verse 13. When they could not defeat his arguments, verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. So who we have? A man arrested. He's, he's accused of blaspheming God. He's accused of blaspheming Moses. And then when they come and bear witness, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. So we have four indictments. He blasphemes God. He blasphemes Moses. He blasphemes the law. And he blasphemes the temple. Well, when they made these charges... And you can go ahead and put those up on the screen, all four of them. When they made, these should be in your notes as we go through this text. When, when they made these charges, we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, he's standing alone, by the way, no lawyer, no advocate. He stands alone in the first verse of Acts chapter 7 is, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And the first part of verse 2, And Stephen said, And then he begins sermon 
It's his defense, but it's more than just a simple defense. He sees this as an opportunity to share with them truth that he has received. He sees this as an opportunity to share with them the experience that he's had in recognizing that this Lord Jesus Christ was not a fly-by-night preacher, was not a rabble-rouser, was not somehow deceitful, not a false prophet, but was the promised Messiah. And he lived and he lived perfectly. He died on the cross to shed his blood as God's perfect sacrifice. And he was resurrected and he yet lives. And there is no other name under heaven whereby people can be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter saw this challenge. Uh, Peter, Stephen saw this challenge as an opportunity to reiterate again and to apply contextually the gospel message to them. Now, is he making a defense? Yes, he's making a defense. And so as we go through this text, by the way, it's a long text. It goes from, his sermon goes from verse 2 all the way down through verse 53. And we're going to look at, I'm going, we're going to kind of skip across and focus on the sections of this because it, while it, at one point it looks just like a history lesson. Why is Stephen giving them a history lesson? He talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He talks about Moses and the Red Sea and the law and Mount Sinai and the children of Israel. These are the Jewish leaders. Don't they know all this? Well, yes, they know all this. He's demonstrating to them, first of all, that he's not a blasphemer. That this God of glory, as he says in chapter 7, verse 2, this God of glory, he's not, he's not blaspheming against God. And then he looks at Abraham and sees how God called Abraham and set aside the people. And he goes on and he makes a defense that he's not blaspheming Moses. He's certainly not blaspheming the law. And he gives them a different perspective of the temple. Not a new perspective, the perspective that the prophets had given. And then he turns their indictment upside down and he indicts them. So as we go through this text, which I think, this is great. Don't you guys love stuff like this? You love the history, the story, to see how here's a man on trial, and he knows it, folks. He's on trial for his life. For the convictions that he holds that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And they try to shut him up, and they try to reason him out, and they can't do it, and he's brought before the highest court, and he stands there, and he is not afraid. The look on his face was not fear. He is not arrogant. The look on his face was not pride. I've got the answer. You don't. He's not sarcastic. He's not condescending. He's not belligerent. He's got a face like the face of an angel. Confident. Not in himself, but in his God. Peaceful. In adverse circumstances, yet comforted and encouraged by the Holy Spirit within him. Knowledgeable. Sure, he has been prepared. But he knows the disciples, the same thing Jesus told the disciples, they taught to their disciples, the disciples they were making, that when you are accused, don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit will tell you in that day what to say. And so Stephen begins his defense. Are you a blasphemer against God? the God of glory. And he goes through the history and he says, the God of glory chose Abraham. 
and he made him a promise. Now, as we go through each one of these, I want you to look for a promise. I want you to look for a deliverer, and I want you to look for the rejection of the deliverer. This becomes very important at the end of this sermon. Because he's not only given the history and declaring that he is orthodox, he believes the truth. But he's pointing out that they don't. That they've missed the truth. And so he begins with Abraham. And he talks about the patriarchs. Abraham, God promised him a land. A land that he didn't get to set foot in. But he also promised him descendants. And the descendants, he waited for that promise to be delivered, to be answered. And that promise was answered in Abraham. And then Isaac. And Isaac, who had Jacob. And Jacob, who had 12 sons, who become the patriarchs, the fathers of the 12 tribes. And so what we see is him saying to them, by reiterating this story, I am not blaspheming God. Uh, verse 5, looking for the promise, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length to Abraham in the land, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. The promise of a nation. God's promise to choose a people. God's promise to be their God. God was fulfilled, which was fulfilled in the birth of Isaac and through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the twelve patriarchs. And he continues on then with the story of Joseph. You guys remember the Sunday school lessons of Joseph, the Bible stories that you read? Joseph was rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He uh, was got a place at Potiphar's house and then from Potiphar's house to prison and he found favor with God and he found favor with Pharaoh and then in a time of severe famine Pharaoh exalted him and he became the savior of his family. He became the savior of God's people. The savior of the sons of Abraham. The point that he's making is that there is a promise that is being fulfilled that there was a deliverer sent for a time of crisis and that deliverer was Joseph and yet the patriarchs themselves rejected their deliverer. They sold him into slavery and later rejected him again. The promise of the land had not been fulfilled, but it was soon to be. Verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. By the way, if you want a thumbnail version of God's acts throughout the Old Testament, that God is the God of history and that history culminates in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an excellent, this is the Cliff Notes version. All right? This is an excellent summary of how God has moved throughout history. So the point he's making is, I'm no blasphemer against the God of glory. But he lays the foundation that the patriarchs have rejected their deliverer, Joseph. And we see this as a recurring pattern. Matter of fact, he brings it up. Stephen goes on in verses 17 through 43, and he tells the story of Moses' birth. And his preparation by God to be their deliverance from slavery. By, uh, for, and from... He himself being delivered by the decree that the baby should be killed and being placed in Pharaoh's household to be raised. And in verse 22, he reiterates that by saying, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. He identifies Moses. I'm no blasphemer against Moses. I know that God delivered Moses. 
I know that he lived with his mother, Jochebed, for three months. I know that he was placed in a basket in the Nile. I know that Pharaoh's daughter found him and took him in and raised him as one of his own. I know that this was a sovereign God providentially providing a deliverer for his people. And he taught him math and geometry and and geography and sociology and astrology. He taught him all of the sciences and all the things that he would have learned in Pharaoh's household. And he taught him how to lead and how to be a leader of men. And he prepared him. And he goes on to tell one specific instance where Moses, having this sense that he needs to identify with God's people, having this sense probably already placed in his heart by his mother, Jochebed, who raised him in Pharaoh's household, that he was to be the deliverer of his people, thought in, sought in his own power to do so. He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite. The story Stephen relates to the Sanhedrin. And when Moses saw it, he was angry and he identified with his people and so he killed the Egyptian and he buried him. Delivering the Israelite, here's a man trying to be the deliverer of his people. How did his people respond? He goes out the next day and there are two Israelites and they're fighting one another and Moses intervenes and says, don't fight one another, you are the same people. And one of them sarcastically and rudely responds, he rejects his, his, his intervention. He says, are, well, why? What are you going to do about it? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? A deliverer rejected on a smaller scale sends him into the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. There he gets married. He has two sons. Again, Stephen is relating all of this to the Sanhedrin. He reminds them of God's call to Moses in the wilderness. He tells them of the burning bush experience. And he reminds them that their forefathers rejected Moses too. Verse 35 in his sermon, Stephen's sermon, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected. Saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God has sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. What was the promise? The promise was deliverance of the God's people from slavery in, in Egypt. What was the next step? He sent a deliverer, Moses. How did the children of Israel respond to Moses? They rejected him. They rejected him. At the first 40 years, when he killed the Egyptian, seeking in his own power to do this, when God sent him back, he went to Pharaoh on their behalf, but they rejected him. They said, don't come here. You're not the right guy. When you do this, you're going to make things worse for us, not better for us. And yet God had a plan and overruled. And so he says, I'm not a blasphemer of Moses. I believe Moses was God's man. I believe Moses was called by God, equipped by God, but... Our fathers rejected him. So we see a deliverer in Joseph rejected by the patriarchs. We see a deliverer in Moses rejected by the Israelites in slavery. And in verse 38, now he turns and answers the question, are you a blasphemer of the law? And he turns the attention to the law. And he says, this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness. This is is Moses with an angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And here's what he says about Moses. I'm no blasphemer of Moses. He received the living oracles to give us. God spoke to Moses. God gave Moses the law. Stephen is declaring to them, Moses is the lawgiver. God wrote it. The angels mediated. 
Moses received it and he brought it down to his people. I am not a blasphemer of Moses, nor am I a blasphemer of the law. The law encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? Here's a Sunday school question for you. What's the first commandment? I'll wait. You can guess it starts with thou shalt not. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How did Israel do with the first commandment? It didn't do well. Stephen says, I'm not blaspheming the law. I cherish the law as God's word. And yet, our fathers, our history, our pattern has been rejection. Every time God sent a deliverer or a means of deliverance, a deliverer or a means of blessing, which the law is, it's a means of blessing, either through obedience to the extent that we can obey, obey, but particularly because it shows us our inability to obey it and our need of a Savior, Romans chapter 3. So the law blesses us by turning our dependence to the only one who can save us, the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah. And Stephen says, I am no blasphemer of the law, but you, however, your ancestors, our ancestors, rejected Verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Listen to how God indicted them then. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, small g, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I sent you into exile beyond Babylon what is Stephen doing in his defense am I a blasphemer of the God of glory no I love the God of glory I have total confidence in his ability to call to save to keep all of his promises am I a blasphemer of Moses no I believe Moses went to Sinai and there face to face with God God gave him the law. God sent him as a deliverer. I'm not blaspheming Moses. Am I a blasphemer of the law? No. God spoke the law, the living oracles of God. And he entrusted them to Moses. Moses, the lawgiver. And they became the guide for the children of Israel and for our nations. And yet, our history is that we reject every deliverer God sends. And we reject every prophet that God speaks. We slay the prophets because they make us uncomfortable. Because they say truths that we don't want to hear. And then he turns his attention, first of all, of course, to God through his dealings with Abraham and the patriarchs. And ultimately Joseph. And then Moses and then the law. And then he starts talking about the temple. He mentions David. David built him a house when God gave them the land they occupied the land and David looks around and says look at this house I have to live in and there's no house for God still using a tent still using a tabernacle that had come through the wilderness let me build you a house God and God said not you God said not you because you're the man of the sword you, you shed blood but 
Solomon, the next king, your son, your heir, he can build a house. And he gives him specific instructions how to build a house. And the first temple that is built is Solomon's temple. And it's glorious. And it is majestic. And yet, when it is dedicated, the glory of God descends upon it. And again, God declares, and Solomon declares, that God does not live in a house made by hands. No building can contain God. No building can contain the glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And yet, these people, in some transition from simple obedience to the rites and rituals that would point to Christ, have made the temple a a thing of idolatry. When Solomon's temple was destroyed, they were released, and they were taken into captivity. They were released, and they came back, and they started to build Zerubbabel's temple. But you see again and again how they would lay a foundation, and it would stop, and they would struggle with that. You remember the whole prophecy of Micah, the minor prophet Micah, and his encouragement for them to stay true to the task. And strangely enough, Herod, Herod, that Herod, Herod the Great, built the temple for the Jews. He wanted to be the king of the Jews. He was an Idumean appointed by Rome. And yet, to gain the favor of these people that he wanted to oversee, he built Herod's temple. Massive again and beautiful. And the Jews must have felt like, matter of fact, the Jewish leaders really felt like, oh, we've got the temple again. We can be the people of God again. And they begin their ritual sacrifices again. And they begin their worship through the temple ministry again. And it became the heart of their religion. As a matter of fact, it became the heart of their religion so much that they met in the temple dedicated to God without the power of God, without the active presence of God, without the glory of God. And the temple that should have been a house of prayer for all people became instead a den of thieves called such by the Son of God. And Stephen says, I'm not, a, I'm not a blasphemer against the temple. And he points to the prophet Isaiah and he says, listen, here's what God said. God said, the earth is mine. The mountains, my footstool. I am not contained in a house. I am not blaspheming the temple. You are when you place it above the God of glory who cannot be contained in a house. And after rehearsing their history, the promises of God, the promises fulfilled, at least partially fulfilled, that they saw and then continuing to be fulfilled, and the deliverer sent and the deliverers rejected, and this pattern after pattern after pattern, and he's standing in the very place, talking to the very people who demanded that God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, be crucified. And I imagine the weight of history just kind of comes on him. A face is the face of an angel, and yet now he's so emotionally engaged that he turns their indictment of him as a blasphemer upon them. And here's what he says. This is, how would you like this for the invitation to a sermon? You stiff-necked people. That's simply you're stubborn. You're hard-hearted. God wants to change everything, and you don't want to change anything. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, no greater insult to a Jewish man. No greater greater insult 
Circumcision is a sign that we're God's people. It is a sign of a covenant and agreement with God. And yet you, rather than opening your eyes and opening your ears to the truth of God, you have, remained, you have allowed them to remain covered. And here's the statement. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did. We've been hearing about that. You remember the history lesson we just did. As your fathers did, so do you. And he reiterates what Jesus and others have said. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says, I'm not a blasphemer of the law. I've received it. I'm keeping it. You received it and did not. Now, when they heard these things, they were less than happy. How would you respond? You know how they did. They were enraged. They were filled with rage. They gnashed their teeth. One commentator said they were so angry they couldn't get the words out. They just growled and gnashed their teeth. They were filled with rage. Matter of fact, I want to read the passage because I want us to contrast this young man and the religious leaders of his day when they were confronted with truth. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the sun standing at the right hand of God. Wow. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, This is Stephen, Lord Jesus receive my spirit and falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice Lord do not hold this sin against them and when he had said this he fell asleep that is a euphemism another way of saying he died he was executed look at the difference when confronted by truth Stephen when confronted by truth had repented Stephen had been filled with the Spirit of God as he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When they were confronted by this same truth, they rejected. And they were filled with rage. They filled with rage. Stephen filled with the Spirit of God. Important contradistinction between the two. When they looked around, they saw Stephen. And they were, as described later by Saul, who was standing there at this time, spiritually blind. Do you think they saw the power of God in this at this time? They did not. They were blind to the promises of God. They were blind to the prophecies of God. They were blind to the living oracles of God, refusing to hear them. Yes, their eyes were uncircumcised. Their ears were uncircumcised, meaning simply that they were covered, that they were closed, that they were not receptive 
and yet Stephen's eyes were open. Open. Wow. That was me, Doc. Sorry. Lord's coming back just that soon. Be ready. Stephen's eyes were open. Matter of fact, they were open to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ to the extent that by God's grace, as they laid hands upon him and as they drug him out of the city, as they picked up stones to stone him. By the way, these false witnesses that they had before them, those are the ones who had to pick up the first stones. Those are the ones who began this process. And then everyone in their rage would have participated and joined in. A little bit more about that later. But as he is being stoned, he looks up into heaven. And what does he see? He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees God, the Father. I see God. And I see the Son, Jesus. I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they couldn't handle it. Everything he said made him matter. Everything he, everything he said increased their rage. And it increased their blindness. And it increased their response. They were spiritually blind. He had spiritual sight. And they were focused on one thing. We've got to shut him up. We've got to put this man to death. These are the same people who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ... Death solves everything, right? No, obviously not. Not if the Savior is the one you're, you're putting to death. Not if God has foreordained these things and determined these things to be the case. When you, as an evil man, desiring the worst, put him to death, God takes that and uses that for his glory. God ordained those very events that, that mankind might be saved, that we might have the precious blood of Christ shed for us, to cover us, to wash us, and to cleanse us. They were focused on death, and they were focused on Stephen's death at this time. I will tell you that you remember why they carried Jesus to Pilate? Do you remember? Because they told Pilate, we don't have the authority to kill him. You have to do that. And so Pilate tries to get out of it. Matter of fact, Pilate finds no fault in Jesus and would set him free but bowing to the pressure of the people he even washes his hands symbolically I'm not guilty this man's blood is not on my hands but bowing to the pressure of the people who call out crucify him he sends Jesus to the cross no such referral to Pilate here they are so angry and they are so outraged And they are so focused on his death, they drag him out of the city and they put him to, to death in one of, the, one of the, the most cruel ways that a person can be killed. The picture, by the way, that we have here is of a procedure that doesn't stop when the, whole, when the spirit leaves the man. The punishment continues against the dead body for a period of time. And we have no record of his burial, even though the Jews were required by their law to bury him. At least the Sanhedrin didn't. We do have a record that others, devout men, came and took him and buried him. Stephen, on the other hand, was not focused on death. He was focused on life. He was focused on his life, giving glory to God. He was focused on the living Lord Jesus Christ. He looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I have to tell you this because I don't, this amazes me. 
He was focused on the life of his executioners. Father, don't lay this to their account. There's some things that we need to learn from the example of Stephen. Certainly, be godly and be filled with the Spirit of God. Be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful with the message. And when we read his invitation, when we read how he culminates his sermon by accusing them of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you that they destroyed and killed the prophets and persecuted them. They killed those before who announced the coming of the righteous one who you have now betrayed, betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We tend to think it's all condemnation and that it's some sort of condescension and it might even have a touch of sarcasm and he's rubbing this in their faith. But I will tell you what I see in this, both by his demeanor with the face of an angel and both by his prayer that this sin not be laid to their account and by everything we have revealed of his character full of grace. He was motivated to speak to them and he was motivated to pray on their behalf even when they were killing him because of his love for God but because of his hope for them. His hope that they would hear the message. His hope that this time... There would no, be no rejection of the Savior. Not Stephen as Savior. Jesus Christ, God's complete Savior. The total Savior. The one who saves mankind from sin and makes a way for mankind to have peace with God. You've rejected them all down the line through the centuries. You have crucified the Holy One. It is not too late. Do not continue to reject. How many people responded to Stephen's invitation? Trick question. Depends on what you mean by respond. Nobody responded, according to this text, in repentance and faith. Everybody responded by laying hands on him, dragging him out of the city, picking up stones and throwing them at them. As they picked up stones... It was going to be hard work. This was not going to be a quick process. This was brutal. Brutal. This is a painful and mean way to die. And I don't know if you've... Have you ever been... Have you ever been the target of a group of people who are angry? Can you imagine standing in front of a whole group of people who are mad enough at you to kill you? As uncomfortable and as horrible as this situation was. Terrible, terrible place to be in. Stephen is trusting God. He's keeping his faith in God. He's being at peace with God. And he's acting on behalf. In many ways, he prays on behalf of those who are bringing about his death. And in that crowd, as they take off their coats, got to do something, hard work here. They lay him at the feet of this man named Saul. Saul was from Tarsus. Tarsus was in Cilicia. Saul and Stephen had probably carried on multiple conversations in the synagogue of the freedmen. 
Saul was no stranger to this claim that they were making about the Lord Jesus Christ, but Saul was devout. He was devout in his pursuing God the best way he knew how, which was the way he had been raised. Wow, excuse me. Which was the way he had been raised. And we don't know who responded to that invitation. We know that no one, according to this passage, responded to that invitation to repentance and faith. But I, will, I, I believe wholeheartedly that those discussions in this sermon informed Saul of Tarsus after he became Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. And much of his theology came to him, much of his truth came to him through the, the message and the witness and the testimony of Stephen the martyr. And let me tie all this up. All right. We've learned a lot about Stephen over these last three weeks. And I, I want to just tie this up. Number one, there's some things that we need to take to heart. One is we need to be faithful to deliver the message even when it's an unpopular message. Would you agree with that? We need to be faithful to deliver the message even when we are rejected by people. We don't want to reject us. Our friends, our co-workers, our family. What if it cost us a relationship? And yet if we're motivated by love for God and love for others, we will not mince the truth. We will clearly present the truth of God. And in your application questions, there are ways that you can explore how to be faithful in delivering a gospel witness. The second thing is you've got to trust God with the results of your witness. If you count victories or wins by how many people respond to your invitation, Stephen lost. But i got news for you. He didn't lose. He won. He won because of his yieldedness and his obedience and his passion. And we are still celebrating his life and still listening and proclaiming the same sermon that he proclaimed. And how many untold thousands of people are being even touched today by the truth that Stephen proclaimed that has been recorded and preserved throughout history. And how many were touched by Paul and others that Stephen had an impact on? And that's the point. Trust God with the consequences. Be faithful with the message. And trust God with the results. And there was a great movement of Christianity. It was obviously divine. It was obviously providential. It was the establishment of the church. This was not some sort of method that they incorporated. And when they did the method, it was some sort of formula and it worked. But I will tell you that what is common with the movements of God is the prayers of his people, including praise and confession, repentance and yieldedness and obedience and the proclamation of the gospel message. And folks, that's, that's right where we are. It's right where we are. Listen to me. It's right where we are. We need to be a people like Stephen. In love with God. In love with people. Bridging those by sharing the truth and trusting God to do His work in the hearts and lives of men and women. Isn't God good? Aren't you glad that we have the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? No other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. 
Aren't you glad that we're given the privilege and the opportunity to share that we get to be a part of God's great work? I hope that you have learned and enjoyed and been challenged as we've studied the life of Stephen. Next week, we're going to talk about Philip. Uh, Philip the Evangelist. It's a good tie-in. And how God greatly used him in two circumstances that are widely different from one another. So our prayer is simply that God will be glorified in our obedience to him today. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this example. Thank you for this message that Stephen recorded and the way that it spoke not only to them, but the way that it speaks to us. Thank you for the fact that you rescue people today. You convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. You redeem. You save and you transform lives. You, you demand everything, but Father, you change everything. You did for Stephen. I pray that you have for us. And like Stephen, I pray that we will be faithful to the mission to be your witness. That we will be faithful to the living word. That we will display it in our lives. And that we will not have an attitude of fear. That we will not have an attitude of pride and superiority but that we will be humbly confident in your work in us and through us as we proclaim your word and as we make mature disciples of all nations. Father, we love you. Be glorified in us today. In your name I pray. Amen.